and welcome to the new episode of Beyond the Indus with your host, Tushar Shetty. And I'm Joe Willem. And uh, Joe, it's been an interesting week for several reasons. We've had the long-anticipated Modi visit to the US, and I do want to get your reaction on that. We've also had some interesting developments in Russia with the whole Prigozhin coup. So a very exciting time for the world in general. But uh, speaking of unexpected invasions, uh, Joe, you've had a couple of interesting visitors this week, haven't you? You could say as much, that's for sure. Uh, uh, yeah, I came right in the office, which um, was a bit, bit unexpected. I mean, it is the time of year with, with the monsoon coming in. Uh, I'm sorry, the first week or two is when, when we typically tend to see more snakes than, than usual. But yeah, it keeps you on your toes. I mean, I won't make any jokes about <laughs> previous offices that I've, I've worked in. Um, but yeah, if you, if you hear a sudden silence from, from my side, then uh, you know what's happened to me in this week's episode. Well, in the past, you've always had interesting remedies to uh, a lot of ailments, like sunburn, for instance. Do you have a folk remedy for cobra bites? So actually, my landlord sent round, my office landlord sent round a priest to, to bless the office. So we're now confident that going forward, it's going to be a, a snake, a snake-free zone. Fantastic. Okay, so Joe, it's been an interesting week, and I do want to get your reactions on, or rather your reactions to the reactions to Modi State Visit. We've seen a lot of different reports coming from the U.S., obviously, aside from the main Modi-Biden meetings and the numerous deals uh, that have been struck. Uh, there's also been a lot of commentary uh, in the media, particularly in a lot of progressive outlets, the Washington Post, New York Times, foreign affairs, foreign policy. And Joe, it, there does seem to be this really strong narrative that despite growing U.S.-India ties, there seems to be a perception, at least in certain parts of the U.S. political spectrum, that India and the United States, despite being democracies, don't really share the same values. And this is more an alliance of convenience. And that's something that I wasn't too happy about because I did read a couple of articles, one by uh, Noah Smith, who's an economics blogger, but also by an author called Akilesh Pilalamari uh, at The Diplomat. And both of them point out that this narrative that India and US don't share values based on the current ruling party of India is a bit short-sighted. And they also point out that Americans have only recently en masse began to pay attention to India. So their perceptions of Indo-US ties or Indo-US shared values may not necessarily be based on a longer historical spectrum. But honestly, I was just heartbroken that uh, my early 20s savior, Bernie Sanders, condemned PM Modi's visit. What response did you have to the uh, commentary ongoing? Yeah, I saw that, that Sanders, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and a couple of other sort of, uh, I can say, liberal politicians in the, in the United States boycotted Modi's speech at, at Congress. There's going to be more question marks for Joe Biden as he cozies up to India, you know, with Modi potentially or looking like he's going to be re-elected next year. What I can say is that we look like there's some controversy on the horizon over Indians Union civil code. That now looks set to or, or quite likely to be passed, which would remove laws in India that are set for things like marriage, divorce, tax, along religious lines and, and make a unified code in the country. And there's a lot of split debates on this. Many people think that it will help pull India together. But then there's also a lot of opposition um, that say that it wouldn't allow Muslims to, to follow marriage customs, for example. Um, so I think this is certainly one to watch for. And I think Mr. Biden uh, and the Democrat Party will be questioned over their ties to Modi as and when this, this new policy is passed. Fair enough, Joe. And I see you've been very polite and not made any references to any authoritarianism or human rights violations by this government, which is very polite of you. But I do think that there is absolutely a place for criticism, uh, especially when it comes to the sort of values and the platform that's being purported in which India and US are going to be acting in the future. 
this doesn't seem to be sold at least to both the U.S. and Indian public as just a marriage of convenience. But I think that there is a way of criticizing it. And I think I saw an article that talked about over 70 U.S. legislators in the House of Representatives, including some uh, well-known Indian American legislators like uh, Pramila Jaripov. They uh, sent a letter to President Biden, which was effusive in their encouragement and praise for growing India-U.S. ties. They said they completely support it and they're glad that more and more investments and more defense cooperation is going to be happening between India and U.S., uh, but they did say, uh, they did ask President Biden to raise certain questions about authoritarianism, about growing intolerance against Muslims, and about attacks on freedom of press and journalists. All in all, I thought that was a very measured response. Then certain responses we've heard from legislators like Ilan Omar, for instance. We've seen at the row this week also uh, between Barack Obama and several very senior Indian politicians. So Mr. Obama um, made comments or suggested that, that India might pull apart if, if the Modi government uh, didn't improve its treatment of the country's minorities. And this led to quite significant condemnation from Nirmala Sitharaman, um, India's finance minister, it, it essentially saying that it was quite hypocritical from from Mr. Obama. See, as she mentioned that, that he bombed six Muslim countries um, during his tenure. There were comments that were echoed by Rajanath Singh, who's India's defense minister, who made, who made remarks along similar lines. So, so I think that the point was made from, from Delhi that if there's going to be scrutiny on the Indian side, there should be scrutiny on, on the American side as well. Yeah, and I remember a visit from Obama when he was president. I believe it was back in 2015. And he made similar statements about human rights and about protection of minorities in Delhi while Modi was prime minister. But the next leg of his international trip was Saudi Arabia. So I do remember a lot of Indians complaining about that same kind of hypocrisy uh, even back then. But uh, yeah, Joe, on to our stories for today. Uh, so what have you been following? So I think there's a quite a remarkable uh, shift going on at the moment. The news has kind of been a little bit brushed into the carpet, um, but quite a significant energy sex overhaul that were going on or that we're seeing in India at the moment. And my interest first peaked in the story when the Indian government announced they would not commission any new coal power plants for the next five years. And I suppose a pretty major announcement in India being one of the world's largest uh, emitters. Now, it doesn't mean that the use of coal power isn't still going to increase in India due to already commissioned projects, but we think the amounts of coal power that are in use will rise in absolute terms by 2030 by about 19%. But what we're seeing now is, is perhaps the, the first signs of setting up a real infrastructure for renewables. You know, there are more, prior, more plans afoot. Um, India has been rolling its, its solar panel import taxes and taxes on solar cells to stimulate domestic industry and consumption. I mean, at the moment, there is demand for solar power, but simply not enough supply. And that's partly been down to, to trying to limit uh, imports from China. Um, a big story this week, or big exclusive in the Financial Times, he reported there'll be a multi-billion dollar subsidy scheme for companies making electricity grid batteries in India. Um, and further discussions underway to allow foreign companies to invest in India's nuclear power industry for the first time. Perhaps that last one, a bit more controversial than those that came before, I mean, India plans to install around 500 uh, gigawatts of clean energy by 2030, which could power anywhere up to about 500 million homes. But so far, it's only been adding around 20 gigawatts annually. So what we're seeing, I, I think, is, is a recognition that not enough has been done before, or not, not enough has been done up to this point. Uh, and this needs to be hyped now. Um, you know, proportional consumption of coal use should drop to about 55% by 2030, while hydro, solar, wind, and biomass should rise to about 30% by 2030. 
So I think these new regulations uh, and the new policies, as I said, appear to be offering kind of the renewable sector an opportunity for growth uh, to establish a, a renewable sector in India. And I, I think it's one to, to really an exciting story, I think a positive story to, to keep an eye on. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that this move makes sense to invest in more renewables because if 2022 and 23 have proven anything, it's that the security of energy supplies is an issue that just can't be taken for granted anymore. We're seeing the inflation and the recession that Europe is undergoing right now because they placed all their eggs in the Russian gas supply basket. So I think this is an excellent move. India also spends a considerable amount of foreign exchange on energy imports. And uh, on a wider geostrategic level, we're seeing a lot of moves by China in the Middle East and Central Asia, which are massive suppliers of oil and gas. And therefore, it makes more sense for India to be investing, not just for the environment, but also for its own energy security. And on the nuclear note, it's interesting because the India-US detente, when India-US relations started improving, the significant event that uh, marked that was actually uh, the US-India nuclear deal. Basically, the US gave India a waiver in the nuclear supplies group, which was a significant boost to the prospects of the Indian nuclear industry. So yeah, excellent news, both on the energy front as well as for India's transition to an increasingly green economy. And what have you been keeping an eye on this week, Tish? So Joe, as we're recording this, uh, the breaking news is that the U.S. Supreme Court has struck down affirmative action in uh, college admissions in the United States. Basically, U.S. colleges are no longer allowed to discriminate based on race when seeking admissions, and this is an issue that affects the Asian American and Indian American community particularly. But there's another debate that's going on in the U.S., which is also related to discrimination, and this one specifically involves the Indian American community. So as you know, there's a large and growing community of Indians in America. And in the past couple of years, there's been increased attention being given to the issue of caste discrimination within the Indian diaspora. So in 2020, the state of California sued Cisco, one of the world's largest digital communications companies, for caste discrimination. A number of universities have also in the past few years added caste to their non-discrimination policies. Universities like University of California, Cal State, and Harvard. But in February of 2023, the city of Seattle became the first city in the United States to pass a law to ban caste discrimination, which was followed uh, in March 2023 by the state of California, which is the largest state in the United States by population and is also home to the largest chunk of the Indian diaspora, more than 20%. These laws would accord caste discrimination a higher level of judicial scrutiny, similar to other protected classes like race or sex. So I got interested in this because the commentary on this issue has been extremely divided. You have the progressive side hailing it as a victory for justice and equality, while organizations like the Hindu American Forum have predictably termed it Hindu-phobic and calling it out specifically for targeting Hindu Americans. But the reason I got interested in this is when I looked into it, every single report I read about this, from the lawsuits to university regulation changes to even legislative debates in U.S. states, they all mentioned one specific organization, Equality Labs. So this organization describes itself as a Dalit civil rights organization dedicated to ending caste apartheid, gender-based violence, Islamophobia, white supremacy, and religious intolerance. And specifically, they all point to a single report published in 2018 called Caste in the United States, a survey of caste among South Asian Americans. So Joe, I went and had a look at this report in detail, and the findings were a little surprising. So to quickly break down caste for foreign listeners, there are basically two components to it. One's sort of this divinely ordained hierarchy called Varna, 
which is roughly analogous to class in the West. At the top of the hierarchy, you have Brahmins, who are the priests and the scholars and teachers, basically people who deal with the creation and transmission of knowledge. Then come the Kshatriyas, who are the nobles and warriors, then the Vaishyas, the merchants and landowners, and lastly, Shudras, skilled and unskilled labor. Below these, you have Dalits, who are the outcasts, so to speak, for whom the most spiritually undesirable and menial tasks were reserved, and who have honestly been treated with brutal oppression for most of Indian history. This is a caste system that most people in the West are familiar with. But the other aspect of caste, and arguably one that matters more in India, is Jati, which roughly translates to clans or communities based on familial and occupational groups. So Joe, for instance, to put in the UK context, a textile mill worker in Manchester, a dock worker in Glasgow, and a street cleaner in London might all identify themselves as working class but their communities are very different and their occupations are different and also their experiences with other communities, their living conditions and their political power uh, vary considerably uh, based on where they live and what their backgrounds are. So on to the report itself. So firstly, they got their data from a sample size of approximately 1,200 people answering an online questionnaire, which is not bad, but here you already see problems start cropping up because their survey was open to people identifying as South Asian from Bangladesh, Bhutan, India, Nepal, Pakistan, and Sri Lanka, as well as the Maldives, Trinidad and Tobago, Guyana, Fiji, Tanzania, and Kenya, which is fair enough, not exactly South Asian, but you do find South Asian diaspora in all these countries. But it's also open to all religious affiliations, which was even a little more curious, because while you do see caste in various forms across different religions in India, the way discrimination manifests in that sense or where the experiences are is quite different. So I think it does dilute the quality of this data a little bit. Uh, secondly, for a survey that aims to showcase caste discrimination, particularly in schools and workplaces, they've not actually released any data on schools or workplaces. So for instance, while we know that 41% of Dalits face discrimination in education, something I don't necessarily doubt, we have no idea whether this was in kindergarten, high school, or in universities. And while 61% of Dalits have faced some form of caste discrimination in the workplace, we also don't know which industries or sectors this might be in. And they've actually collected data. It's actually in their questionnaire, but they've just chosen not to release it. So the problem is this data is actually really important when you design targeted policies to combat systemic issues. As you know, India is a pretty big country and caste operates very differently in different parts of the country. So, for instance, uh, people who operate in, let's say, the transport sector or, you know, in the IT sector may actually be from different parts of the country. And consequently, their treatment of other castes might be very different. Uh, we don't know this. They've not released any data on which countries the participants are from. They've not released statewide data. Uh, they've not even released uh, occupation or education data in terms of specific regions. They have released their respondents' gender identification and their sexual preferences. I'm not sure what this contributes to, but, you know, fair game. The second and the most problematic part about this report, Joe, was the anecdotal case studies they provided to support their data. And, you know, while some of these experiences were very harrowing, some of them were not, did not belong in there and also pointed to some major flaws in their assumptions. And, Joe, this is where I had a life-altering revelation. Here this case. In the temple, especially, we see caste a lot. We are Shetty and thus fall as a Shudra caste. Remember, these are the low-skill labor, right? These are people who are discriminated against. He points to Iyengar Brahmins from Tamil Nadu and children of Iyengars who made him feel less cool, not Hindu enough, and it even affects his marriage prospects. His parents had to change his last name growing up. Joe, 
as you know, I'm a Shetty as well. And this revelation that we are Shudra was quite big revelation for me. I'd have a conversation with my parents. Now, the problem is that while Shetties might be identified as Shudras in some government classification, in reality, they're land-owning caste. And this anecdote points to some major problems this report has with conflation and categorization error. It also points to maybe a lack of understanding of, of how caste dynamics operate in different societies and the reality of caste on the ground. So to summarize, there are also some other case studies. For instance, uh, this one. Most Indians in my school were upper caste Hindus, and so I never felt connected to them through Indian culture. They would make fun of the fact that I ate meat and was Christian. In that way, my religion and family history alienated me. I did not know it at the, at the time, but they were Brahmin, and my parents hid from me that I was a Dalit. But if I had known, I could have called out their caste bullying for what it was. So Joe, this person got bullied perhaps through the religion, which is never good. It should be addressed. But she was raised Christian. Neither her nor her friends knew that she was from a Dalit background. Her parents didn't even tell her she was a Dalit. And after finding out that she was from a Dalit Christian background much later, she decided that this was caste bullying. So you see, the problem with these case studies is that it obscures the genuine information that I think should come out, uh, which does point to some caste bullying in workplaces. For instance, some uh, reports and case studies point to caste slurs being used in the workplace, which actually does resemble case studies we've had in India of similar kinds of discrimination, even in elite workplaces. So I'm not saying this report is all fake. I think it does have some strong points. But I do think that by including all these different experiences, not categorizing the data more carefully, and also not providing real data as to the sectors and education places uh, where these incidents occur, it handicaps a lot of people from being able to affect actual change. And while I have no problem with these sort of reports being published, any information in this area is good, the fact that this report almost on its own was used to pass legislation targeting an entire community is concerning. So I would encourage people to go to Quality Labs, have a look at this report for themselves and come to their own um, decisions. And if you guys have any comments or uh, have more context on this, you can email us beyondtheindus at gmail.com to give us your uh, point of view. But yeah, what do you think, Joe? I think you'd make a brilliant, brilliant journalist. Uh, I've said this to you before, but uh, your uh, your fact checking is uh, is second second to none. You can ask it ask it to any newsroom. Um, yeah, I mean it's 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 been uh it's been a hot topic uh or, or the caste system in in India this week because of a, a pretty horrific incident. So an upper caste man was was caught on video urinating uh, on a lower caste schedule scheduled tribe. So ST scheduled tribe are basically courted the same status as like Dalits uh, scheduled caste. I think there's a really good parallel to be drawn for Canadian and American listeners to First Nations or Native American tribes, you know, people who like have been discriminated against from the mainstream of society and have to live in their own areas. Yeah, and it's again, it's sort of brought the the conversation uh, around caste to the forefront because the the individual of Prava Shukla has been charged under the Scheduled Caste and Scheduled Tribe Act, given the intention that this this was a, a caste based incident or caste based crime. You know, there's been a lot of debate on on social media this week about the incident and how horrific and how the judicial system and uh, and and you know, kind of protects people of a, of, a, of a higher caste. Allegedly, the the victim in this case dropped charges uh, because he, he was pressurised to do so. Um, and I mean, we've certainly looked into to cast a lot when I, when I was working with, with the Telegraph. So, I mean, we, we did a piece from uh, from Jarkhan and Chattisgarh looking at, at manual scavengers. Um, you know, manual scavenging is the practice where individuals will, will, will go down drains or into the sewage system uh, to clean them, particularly during, during the monsoon months. Uh, and it's phenomenally dangerous, one of the world's most dangerous jobs. You know, all sorts of horrors down there, as you can imagine, from poisonous gases to, to snakes and spiders. 
And and those that do this practice are, are Dalits, born into bonding this job. And it's, it's generational. I think it really struck me then when I was kind of in, in Jharkhand, in Ranchi, you know, how, how kind of immersed or, or, or prevalent or entrenched the, the caste system remains for, for many people uh, in the country. Um, something that is changing, I believe, but very slowly. Yeah, and there are a couple of interesting anecdotes uh, that I want to add. So one of them came from a report that was published during the partition of India about uh, sanitation workers in Lahore, Pakistan. And it turned out that a lot of these jobs had been reserved for and uh, only given to Dalit Christians in ostensibly a Muslim-majority state where caste shouldn't have been recognized. So the sanitation jobs, which are similar to the manual drain cleaning jobs that you talked about, were reserved for this particular caste in the two religions that don't have caste. And the second thing is an anecdote I heard about South India and Kerala uh, before independence. Now, as we know, Kerala is one of the most educated and um, highly literate part of India uh, at this point. But back in the day, apparently Dalit castes were not allowed to traverse the same road as Brahmins took. And if they had to use that road for their business, they had to wear a bell around their necks like a cow. Uh, in, so that the Brahmins could hear that noise and then hide in a bush so that they wouldn't be polluted by looking at a dialect. So when I say the system runs deep and is very, very problematic, it is in the most brutal and horrific way. But like you said, things are changing. I believe that this person who was connected to the BJP party in Madhya Pradesh uh, has had charges brought against him. And there's word of even more severe charges because of special provisions in the law for discrimination against Dalits and tribals. So even stronger charges being brought against him. So hopefully this practice is changing. And I think in India, at least there is a lot of governmental and official support even if this hasn't percolated to all sections of society. So, on to our main topic today. You know, we here at Beyond the Indus normally cover more political topics, but one of the most fascinating subjects to explore is the rise of India's economy. And our main topic today has to do with one of the most exciting technologies to have come out of India in recent decades. One of the challenges of managing the Indian economy has always been the sheer scale of it providing infrastructure, welfare, regulation, and financial inclusion for over 1.4 billion people is hard, especially in India's diverse and chaotic democracy. But this new technology could be set to change all that and raise the standard of digital governance, not just in India, but worldwide. We're talking, of course, about the India stack. So even if you're not familiar with the term India stack, you've definitely heard of or used one of the many technologies that support it, like the Aadhaar Biometric ID program described as the most sophisticated ID program in the world by former World Bank chief economist Paul Romer, or perhaps the United Payments Interface, UPI, which processes more than 6 billion transactions per month, making it the world's fifth largest payment interface since its launch in 2016. The India Stack's multi-layered digital platform has the potential to revolutionize governance and financial inclusion within India, helping it overcome many of the structural and bureaucratic hurdles that held back its economic growth in the past. Its success has attracted considerable interest from countries around the world who are looking to replicate or plug into the India Stack, which may serve as another feather in the cap for India's growing stature and influence internationally. As Bill Gates put it, India is leapfrogging the world. And now India is looking to explore some of its software abroad. In February of the G20 summit, Modi pitched on exporting India's UPI software, as Tush mentioned, its, its digital payment system. Um, I'm always amazed in India how easy it is to pay using my smartphone. You know, I was down in Goa several weeks ago, uh, and I could buy a coconut on the beach by using several different methods all through my smartphone. I think it's something that people in, in London or New York would be quite envious of. 
Um, Google even recommended that the US Federal Reserve use UPI as its blueprint for developing its own digital payment software. The view in many parts of the world is that India isn't this hegemonic power and that its software can be can be trusted and, and used for good. Now, some countries have already matched up their banks with UPI. You know, this includes neighbors like Bhutan and, and Nepal and countries with large Indian expatriate populations like the UAE, Oman or Singapore to make sending home remittances easier. It really is the scale of the system in India, which is very impressive. Now, there are countries around the world which are planning to plug into this India stack. We look at Philippines and Morocco looking at formulating their own open source national ID too. Jamaica used the Indian stack technology to formulate its COVID-19 database. There are talks ongoing with multiple African countries to broaden out UPI. But while the India stack has garnered considerable praise from both within India and abroad, not just for improving the lives of millions of Indians, but also improving Joe's coconut buying abilities, Questions abound about the safety and viability of this technology. In particular, the Aadhaar database has had several data leaks and breaches, with the private data of hundreds of millions of Indians being released and sold over the internet. Are concerns about privacy and security being ignored in the rush to implement this platform? And could the system potentially be hijacked by bad actors to perhaps infringe on the fundamental rights of Indian citizens? Our next guest is someone who has been at the core of making the India stack a global brand. And he could help us break down these pressing issues and what the India stack means for India's economy and governance in the future. Stay tuned. So we're delighted to welcome one of India's leading private sector financiers to the podcast this week. Gaurav Narain is the co-head of equities at Ocean Dial Asset Management and the manager of the India Capital Growth Fund. Gaurav joined Ocean Dial in November 2011, having been already immersed in the Indian equity markets for the previous 18 years. He has held senior positions as both a fund manager and an equities analyst in New Horizon Investments, ING Investment Management India, and SG Asia Securities India. It's a pleasure to welcome you to the podcast, Gaurav. How are you? I'm great, Joe. Thanks for having me here. So Gaurav, the India stack has generated considerable excitement in policy and business circles at least. A lot of our foreign and even our Indian listeners may not be familiar with this specific term, uh, despite the near ubiquitousness of some of the technologies involved uh, in India. So for instance, you have Aadhaar and UPI. So could you describe for our audience maybe the vision or the philosophy behind the India stack? What are the layers uh, of the stack? And on a broader level, how does this relate to the idea of digital public infrastructure? Actually, the uh, genesis of this is that a large part of the country is still in rural India. I would say 60% of the population is still uh, rural economy dependent. And they really, uh, I would say there are two or three layers through three Indias where, you know, you have the cities and urban centers which are uh, in touch with any global city. But the rest of India was in a different world. And the idea of the digital stack was to really get uh, integrate the whole country and it wasn't being done by the private sector simply because the cost of disseminating services to uh, different parts of the country was just not viable because of low low income levels so really the government came up with the digital stack and uh, i think the core of this is uh, unlike what you see in the western world is this is public owned uh, it's virtually free of cost and it's a very, very high volume uh, transaction stack. So I would say there are three layers to it. Uh, the first layer is what we call the digital identity. It's it's called the Aadhaar. And uh, it's something like a social security number, uh, except it's a lot more technology advanced. What the government did was that uh, they created a digital identity in the form of a 12-digit number, 
for every Indian. Uh, what it does is it has uh, a photograph, it has a fingerprint, and it has a retina scan. And why this was done was that uh, in India, if you're, say, born in a village or a small town, many times you really weren't even born in a hospital or you had no birth certificate. So a large part of the country actually had no identity. So really the government went house to house and, you know, in the villages, they used the village elder to certify X person. This is the name, this is his uh, date of birth, and this is his address, and that became the digital identity. And uh, I would say today, almost every Indian, which is about 1.4 billion people, have a digital identity. And this is, I would say, the first layer. Uh, once you've got everyone having actually uh, uh, can claim who uh, he or she is, you created a bank account for each household. So the government came up with the directive that every household should have a bank account, and banks were really forced to do it. So over a span of two years, 400 million uh, bank accounts were opened and the di digital identity was used as the EKYC for it. So today I could, I could say that it takes 30 seconds to open a bank account. So this was, I would say, the first layer where you had an identity and a bank account with each household. Then came the, the next layer, which is uh, called the UTI, which is the United Payment uh, Interface. This is like any payment gateway, uh, except it's free of cost. So you can do a peer-to-peer -peer transaction, you can do a peer-to-merchant transaction, a merchant-to-merchant transaction. It's very simple. All you need is, is a mobile phone number and, and you click, and, and you can make, uh, make a transaction. So this has again transformed India because suddenly the unbankable came into the banking system and you can make transactions as low as two, two cents uh, simply because there's no cost to it. So every small shopkeeper, uh, road customer, street vendor, is a part of the system. So every place you'll find a QR code or just a phone number and you make these transactions. And people are now being able to transfer money straight to their households and villages, etc. So I think that was the second layer of, of the transaction. And to give an idea, today 45% of global real-time transactions happen in India. That's about 9 billion transactions a month. That's the scale of operations we're talking about. So the next layer was is what is called uh, I would say the the data layer. Uh, uh, this is where what the government has done is they're trying to get every service provider uh, to be able to share data. So today there's something called a digi locker, where everything from your driving license to your insurance policies, everything is linked. As I said, about 300 such service providers, 2,000 such uh, uh, services where you have everything linked. So everything is really on your phone now. And I would say these are the three layers on which uh, 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 the India stack has been built. And as I mentioned, it's open architecture. So all private, public sector, every entity can uh, build layers and layers upon it to, to use these services. Yeah, absolutely. And like you mentioned, the foundation of this India stack is the Aadhaar program, you know, creating this biometric digital identity for more than a billion people. But the lesser known addendum, which I think people should understand more of its impact, is the EKYC, the Know Your Customer processes, which allowed users to verify and authenticate their data online. So maybe give people an idea of what were the challenges faced by the Indian public and Indian businesses uh, before the implementation of these systems, and what impact has it had on their lives and their dealings you know, with each other, with the government and the private sector? Yeah, I think the biggest challenge for anyone was... Uh that they had no identity. You know, they, as I mentioned, in the cities, people like us all have passports and enough proof uh, for any service you want. But that's not the case as you go down to tier three, 
three, four towns. So I think that was the big transformation that with everyone having that identity, uh, you could actually roll out services uh, at a very rapid place, pace. Uh, I mentioned the bank, bank accounts. Uh, and the simple fact is you just give your 12-digit number and your EKYC is done. Likewise, today, virtually everyone has a has a telephone, a SIM card, because of the same process. You just uh, give your twelve-digit uh, number, and and the uh, your KYC is done. So a lot of services across areas, you just need that twelve-digit number, and and you know your key KYC is done. Uh, banks tell us that uh, earlier it used to cost almost twenty-seven, sorry, twelve dollars uh, to do your whole K KYC verification. Today, that cost is down to as low as six cents, which is why you've seen, uh, you know, uh, rural India come to urban India simply because you were able to open such accounts. The cost of of transmission has become uh, very low. Now, you know, you talked about how people are benefiting. Uh, uh, one is clearly money transfers. For example, earlier uh, today, every household in the rural India has someone working in urban centers. But the fact is, if they had to send money uh, to their village. Uh, you know, you have to look out for someone who's going to your village, yeah, collect money, send it through him. Uh, there's sometimes pilferage, it doesn't reach them, or the person takes away some money. Then it moved to somewhere where an, uh, you know, an ATM ATM machine was somewhere close to the village. So there'd be one person who, that, who had an account and was a designated person and he'd take a, a slant transaction charge to transfer money. Today, it's all, all seamless. But I think the biggest change has happened is because everyone has bank accounts, the government is able to uh, uh, what they call the direct benefit transfer. All services, all subsidies, everything goes straight into bank accounts. And I'll give you an example. When COVID happened, in the US, the government was giving checks to every individual. In, in India, what the government did was they just identified who, are the, who should be the beneficiaries, people who are below the poverty line, and the money was transferred straight into the account. Today, I would say over 300 different government subsidy schemes, uh, the money is transferred straight into bank accounts. So huge savings in leakages, corruption has come down dramatically, and the end beneficiary, the person who's the recipient, gets the entire amount directly into his, his bank. So there's a, this transmission of, of funds is leading to savings for government, it's benefiting uh, individuals, uh, and a lot of services have been rolled out on top of that. So for example, You've got uh, insurance schemes launched for the poor, and a whole host of services have just been riding piggyback on the fact that today, uh, uh, you know, with this EKYC uh, and the bank accounts, you know, you've been able to identify the target audience for every service. Well, for me, the probably the most exciting or, or part of the the India stack that I use most regularly, which is the the unified payments interface, uh, commonly known as, as UPI here in India, um, which has radically simplified digital payments uh, through smartphones. Now, I, I can't imagine life w without UPI here, um, and I think you know, particularly doing my job as a journalist, you know, I, I, I've been fortunate to travel right across India. Um, you know, I think back to January, February, where I spent several weeks in, in Bihar and in, in rural Bihar in the north of India. Um, and it wasn't often easy to to access an ATM as we were outside of Patna, you know, outside of the, the urban areas. But it meant that I could still pay for for transport, for food, for, for anything I needed really through UPI. Um, it is remarkable, you know, how how widespread this is or, or how it's been used right across India. Um, I mean, what has facilitated UPI's rapid adoption across the country? 
Um, you know, why have we seen this in India as opposed to in, in other countries globally? Uh, and what sets UPI apart from other existing payments platforms? I think the one big uh, difference is uh, between other payment systems is that it's free of cost. Uh, so everyone from a, a street side vendor, all he needs is a uh, is a is a is a phone number, uh, and all bank accounts are linked to that phone number. So it's really, I think, it's free of cost. Two, it's very simple to use, uh, and of course, COVID also uh, helped it. And you know, as as people get used to it, uh, 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 I think just the scale itself uh, leads to it. But I think the key is that the government owns this infrastructure, so. Every vendor is on it simply because he does not have to pay that two to three percent charges for a POS machine and and the merchant charges for uh, uh, other things. So I think that's the key. As I mentioned earlier in my first uh, uh, answer, that I think in India, cost of transmission is always the biggest issue. And once you overcome that, which is what the government has done by owning this infrastructure, uh, the scale in India is always massive. Right, and it's interesting because it's the scale and how to manage that scale is, for me, the most interesting part of this. Because you have 1.4 billion people, you have them set across different religious communities, different geographies, uh, literate, illiterate, different income levels, and for some, and somehow this one system is being created, which everyone from the poorest person in a rural district. Um, in BR or someone in Mumbai like us, uh, the wealthy city in India, can access almost at an equal level. Uh, and it's also unlocked a lot of other opportunities. So for, I guess, a foreign investor, what this is, is you've created a digital identity for almost all Indians. You've created a system where you can verify that identity and associated documents that uh, the individual uh, might possess. And then you've added a component where you make financial transactions easier. So, for instance, I saw this report which said that if India had to adopt the normal point-of-sale credit debit card approach, it would have reached this level of financial penetration by 2040. And it's taken six years to do what it would have taken half a, a century to finish. So, it's that leveraging and that scale that's interesting. But I wanted to ask you about the commercial opportunities in particular, because we understand perhaps the benefits of giving a billion Indians identity, uh, what that might mean for welfare transfers, what that might mean for targeted subsidies, let's say. But what does that mean for, say, companies operating uh, in India? To my mind, it solves a lot of the problems that have been traditionally associated with the Indian economy, for instance, contract enforcement. So maybe uh, talk about the prospects for development in the commercial sector and the private sector and what this might mean for investors who used to be very of investing in India earlier and now maybe looking at this new opportunity. Yeah, so I think, you know, uh, one I'd like to also highlight, this whole system is interoperable. So, uh, you know, uh, everyone from a fintech company to a bank uh, is part of this whole ecosystem on the payment side. And say the biggest player in terms of transactional volume would be someone like a Google Pay. Now, what, what the opportunity it's throwing you is that now there is everyone is in the finance is you know there is a digital track record happening and multiple companies are being able to leverage on on this to scale up businesses be it insurance companies uh take one of the biggest growing segments today is uh, retail uh finance now why this is happening is simply that now people are able to have uh, a data uh you know fintechs are now just specializing in uh, being able to, as I mentioned, uh, uh, to uh, use this data which they're getting from even uh, uh, small shop owners to be able to provide uh, uh, services like funding them. 
a lot of these people earlier had to go to money lenders because they didn't have the documentation or, or uh, to really uh, get these loans today when you're into this whole digital system you know they have access to your bank records or your da daily uh, payments in, in and out uh, and with all the database you have everything uh, is linked to your uh, to your indirect tax payments so everything is now linked and that's what's uh, driving say on the financial side that the unbanked have come into the banking system they're getting loans and a lot of companies are trying to leverage on these fintechs in particular whole business model has been created about uh, out uh, to lending in areas where banks typically did not go so it's really even in consumer companies uh, earlier you know india has 12 million mom and pop shops uh, even the largest uh, consumer company like unilever's covered directly only half of these shops so they are le leveraging on this technology uh, in the way they're being able to now manage the inventories uh uh so you know it's it's really transforming india in every aspect that rural india is actually becoming part of uh, of the complete india so which is really aiding to the growth and multiple business models are coming in which is why india is actually attracting a lot of foreign direct investments you know it's averaging about 75 to 80 billion dollars a year and largely because uh, people are seeing this opportunity open up earlier india was also one where you know people said it's a big country but finally uh, you know uh, you find that only 20% of the countries where you can actually do business that's changing right and i think that has immense implications because if you think about it the vast majority of indians are not in the formal sector if you're let's say uh, in a mom and pop shop in the corner or if you have a food vendor you know you it's very difficult for them to get credit and credit is it's what drives the economy a growing economy further but now you can have a digital record of all their transactions you know you can have a digital locker of all their you know information and data and you have a way to enforce that so it really opens up the financial sector to um basically micro loans which is quite incredible but i think i want to ask this question in the context of the next steps for india stack and in particular i've heard this concept called account aggregator uh, which seems to be a way of managing people's data with the consent of the people providing the data so very different to let's say silicon valley in the us maybe could you explain the idea behind account aggregators and what impacts would this have on the indian economy in the future yeah it's basically uh, you know account aggregator is, is a simple system for sharing data uh so it's it's like a one stop platform containing all the documentations if you want to apply for a say a loan uh so example today if say i want to uh, apply for a housing loan i go to this uh, uh, uh home loan company or a bank and they last for multiple datas uh right from your bank statements to you know there'll be 10 15 different types of documentations when you come tax statements your you know employment certificate your shares you know your uh, uh your salary slip etc etc and you go man trying to provide this data now what's happened is that the central bank has appointed about eight entities which are called account aggregators so what they're doing is they're just linking themselves to this all these databases and uh, all i have to do is tell the accounting account aggregator give him permission to access the data and he gets all this data straight from the source so they write from my bank account statements to my house rent to my tax statement to uh, uh my uh, kyc to everything comes straight uh, onto the account aggregator and he shares it with the home, home loan uh, provider so for me uh, i don't have to go through the headache for the 
home loan company he knows it's absolute authentic authentic data because it's coming straight from the source and he's able to take that decision in seconds you know he's just have system and processes and use various algorithms and he takes that uh, decision to provide the loan in seconds now take the case you know for me i have all this data on hand i could have still given it it would have taken me a week to collect it but take the case of say a small shopkeeper he has no such data record because he's not paying taxes uh, he is not maintaining book of books or records uh, but in his case also uh, all he has to do is go to the account aggregator and give the permission what the account aggregator does is it takes his bank account it takes his whatever indirect taxes he's paying for the purchases he's made what is his electricity bill uh, monthly electricity bill which he's paying if he's paying a rent what is the sort of rent is he's getting and all that data goes to the the loan provider and, and that person through his loan system etc figures out okay this is actually the sort of turnover this shop should be having this is a daily uh, business and then take a call and provide provide providing the loan so really even the unbanked used to go to the money lender is now in a position where he can actually go to a for a bank or someone for a loan simply because all the data which he himself doesn't have is being aggregated at one end and collated and given to the uh, uh, service provider so it's really eliminating fraud where people are giving fraud bank statements etc but i think it's it's just ensuring you know with other forms of technology you're suddenly seeing uh, uh, many parts of india coming in, in into this economy so i think that's what the account aggregator is really doing that it's collating every data at one point and just making it uh, easy and simple and very efficient the whole system in in being able to disperse credit and other services it's certainly true that the indian economy is is absolutely booming at the moment as as you say um you know the world's largest fastest fast, the world's fastest growing large economy uh, in addition to my journalism i i do political and financial consulting um for a range of, of multinationals sort of around the world and it's no exaggeration to say that that everyone you know is either wants to come to india was expanding their presence in India. Um, you know, I think the India stack in itself then also offers opportunities uh, globally. I, I mean, it's it's getting a lot of interest from abroad. Um, we've seen, or we discussed earlier in the podcast, um, you know, collaborations with the Philippines, with Jamaica. I mean, how do you think that India intends to, to internationalize the India stack going forward? Uh, and which countries uh, do you think it would be interested of? I think India is, you know, because it's an open architecture. India is willing to, you know, has been uh, a lot of countries have really looked at uh, trying to uh, adopt some form of the India stack. I think two countries, Philippines and Morocco, have already uh, uh, started building out something very similar. But I think even countries like the US, etc., have had a detailed look at our whole uh, Aadhaar uh, system. You know, the digital identity. because it's possibly the most sophisticated anywhere in the world uh i think when covid happened uh you know india created just an app called covin uh which rode on the on the aadhaar system and you know india was able to administer almost 9 billion vaccines in a month because you could fix appointments through this app you know you administered the vaccine and instantly your uh, certificate was uploaded uh four five countries adopted that took that same app and adopted it in their countries Uh, I was reading uh, uh, yesterday. Uh, also, there's the Shanghai cooperation well, a movement of eight nine countries who are also uh, exploring on how to take this India stack and implement it in in uh, in their countries. So I think uh, the whole world is really looking at uh, 
uh, how to have such a uh, system across many other countries. And I think the World Bank is uh, is very involved in this whole discussion where it's really uh, trying from their perspective that, you know, they find the system uh, which is uh, exceptionally good and one of the best in the world and trying to take it uh, forward to other countries as well. So like any any new system or, or relatively new system, we should say, um, you know, there are there are certain parts that, that need tweaking. Uh, you know, we, we have seen, uh, you know, kind of while while digital public infrastructure has has grown, concerns about privacy and security of data. Um, you know, there have periodically been breaches and leaks in, in the Aadhaar database in India. So, so how would you, how do you think that these could be avoided or, or mitigated in the future? Um, because I think this is something that's going to be key when we talk about exporting the stack uh, internationally. Um, you know, do you, do you foresee any new legislation, for example, being taken to guarantee data privacy and security? Yeah, I think this is a, a, a hot debate in every country and uh, in India as well. I think what India currently lacks today is a comprehensive data protection bill. And I think uh, a lot of work is happening into it and you may see something come out. But obviously there are a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of debates happening on how, how it should be and it shouldn't be an overkill uh, in terms of what they're doing. So even a lot of the global digitech companies have shared shared their views with the government. So I think this is something which um, will always uh, be a problem factor. Uh, I think in India's specific case, also because, uh, you know, it is uh, publicly owned and the government has access to a lot of data, I think one of the bigger debates is also that uh, this data can be misused by the government a lot. And you're possibly seeing some of it also happen, uh, you know, you're because uh, other than the digital tax, uh, India has also implemented, a, a, you know, a, its uh, goods and services tax, which is an entire digital indirect taxation system across the country. Uh, you know, you're, uh, a lot of other areas have also got digitized. So I think the government is has access to a lot of data of other politicians, other businessmen. And uh, I think the whole political system is very worried that this government could misuse that data for its own vested interests. So I think you have two big issues really on leakages of data itself and misuse of data. And just to ask along the question, how do you foresee sort of regulation coming into this sector? Taking perhaps an example from the financial sector, is this something that there would be like a body created uh, in order to draw up regulations? Or do you think there needs to be some sort of a legislative act that's passed in, let's say, the parliament? I think eventually there's most likely going to be an act passed in parliament so a lot of debate is already going on, on on this side of it. And as I mentioned, India does need a, a comprehensive data protection bill. Uh, so uh, I, I think something will have to happen on it because already, like in the Western world here itself, even uh, a lot of, uh, you know, there is a lot of intervention by the government on a lot of social media companies, a lot of global companies. So it's already a very hot topic. And it's, I think we have a very, uh, the IT minister, the uh, very sharp guy, very well educated, he knows what he's doing. So I'm, I'm sure there will be a lot of progress being made on this because uh, it's, it's a very key issue given the way the world is digitizing. So Joe, that was a fascinating discussion. And I think for me, the implications of the India stack are much wider than simply an identity system or perhaps a way to exchange money. So consider some of these use cases when you think of India. 
for instance, a lot of people complain about contract enforcement, especially foreign companies investing in India. A lot of uh, aid agencies talk about the difficulties of delivering aid over India's geographic and population diversity. But now you can, for instance, if you, let's say, sell cars, uh, if you want to target people from a lower income strata who may not necessarily have the money to pay upfront, you can start a targeted payments plan where their payments per month are linked to their Aadhaar or their UPI rather where you're guaranteed to make a return on your investment. And even if you're selling to consumers who are not traditionally in the income bracket that buy products, uh, you could also talk about foreign companies who want to invest into Indian companies who now have all the details, uh, bank records, income tax payments, uh, how much they export, how much, where they own land, uh, the revenues, etc. And this extends not just to the largest corporations who would have these figures uh, optimized uh, for European American investors, but also for medium and small businesses. And this is where you can target many more opportunities. You know, back in 2004, there was an economist called C.K. Prahlad who talked about the idea of the fortune at the bottom of the pyramid. And he talked about the idea of how the unbanked, unserved masses also have desires and also have the income to which they could fulfill those desires if only the private sector and businesses made room or made it possible to sell products to them. And I think the India stack genuinely allows that. By connecting all of India under a single interoperable database that other applications and other businesses can plug into, you've really unleashed the potential of the Indian economy and overcome a lot of the problems that traditionally businesses and individuals have found operating in India. But as a uh, certified foreigner who has operated in India, what do you think? <laughs> certified foreigner indeed. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's remarkable, remarkable, isn't it? Um, I, and as you say, I think, you know, so I spend a lot of my day-to-day life dealing with with corporates that want to come to India. Uh, and, and often the challenge they, they, they mentioned in the past is, Ease of doing business here, or ease of making payments, you know, as you mentioned, or having access to consumers and customers. And I think what the India stack has done is, is, is completely changed changed the game. Um, and it's also an incredibly valuable soft power tool, I, w- I would say, for India. I mean, it's no secret that that India is known for its its prowess when it comes to technology. I mean, you look at the the CEOs of of the world's major tech companies, you know, from Google Cloud to Microsoft to to Vimeo to YouTube. You know, these are all individuals of Indian origin, but India Stack is something that, you know, is perhaps less well known about abroad, but I think something, uh, as I mentioned previously, that we're going to hear increasingly, increasingly more about uh, in the years to come. Um, I think talks are ongoing at the moment with uh, nine African countries uh, to outsource or, or to export the, the technology and the software. Um, and again, you know, you could see, you could see it being replicated and, and having these similar transformative effects. You know, in other countries, we're looking at something like Nigeria or, or Ethiopia, countries with large populations um, that are seeking to, to stimulate economic growth to match this population growth. You know, I think it's it's invaluable for India to to be to be the country that is that is sharing this technology. Um, it, it's a you know we say this almost every week, I think, on the podcast, but it is a phenomenally exciting time uh, to to be in the country. And, yeah, it keeps us on our toes, trying to keep up with uh, the, the the various uh, exciting developments kind of across different sectors. Yeah, and I think uh, we've talked a lot about, say, private businesses. We've talked a lot about the commercial opportunities, maybe the administrative efficiencies. But I think the one comment that really swung it for me uh, in terms of the way I look at it was your former prime minister, uh, Tony Blair. Uh, He was in a conference in London that had nothing to do with India at all. It was about governance in Britain. 
And he argued for government programs that actually serve the needs of the poor. That, uh, he pointed to ways the government could pull out people from poverty in the most effective manner. And he pointed to the India stack as one of those ways that the government could do it. So to me, this gives me a tremendous amount of hope. In the 21st century, we're not only faced with the challenges you know, of war, of global plagues, etc., the ones we normally face, but also the idea of financial inclusion. What do we do about the people watching people getting rich who wonder why they can't access that wealth or that lifestyle? And I think having this sort of an open access program that's free from 99% of the population is the way to go for that. So yeah, extremely excited. And hopefully we'll have more uh, similar subjects to cover about the Indian economy in the future. So that's all we've got time for for this week on Beyond the Invis. But a huge thank you to all of our listeners uh, and to Gaurav for, for joining us. Uh, and we hope, you, we hope you'll all tune in next time.